health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. In the world of communication, it's ironic that we have more ways to stay connected than ever before, yet it seems more challenging to make connections and communicate effectively, whether that's with a colleague at work, your family at home, or the random person on social media you decided to pick a fight with. It seems we're surrounded by our own opinions and biases that it's challenging to step outside yourself and see someone else's perspective so that we can have productive conversations and conflict resolution. My guest is Natalie Garriman. She's the owner and principal consultant at 180, a firm that focuses on conflict resolution and mediation. For the past decade, Natalie has worked as a consultant with executive teams, both nationally and internationally, to develop strategies aimed at fostering growth and innovation, shifting organizational culture, and engaging employees. She has driven large-scale change and innovation initiatives inside Fortune 500 companies alongside sales, customer service, R&D, and new product innovation teams, to name a few. She has certifications in mediation, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and yoga instruction. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me. Can you kick us off by talking about your background and what led you to conflict resolution and mediation? Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I am, yes, in the world of conflict resolution. It wasn't always my space. My background is actually in organizational development, change management, and culture strategy, where I've spent the majority of my career. But one of the things that I had found consistently come up throughout uh, my decade in organizational development was that I would go into these organizations and people truly just wanted to be listened to. And whether it was uh, their organization implementing a change initiative, and they just felt like we've been through this before, we've tried to voice our concerns, but it feels like no one's listening to us. Um, I think I just kept noticing that there were opportunities to create really safe spaces for honest dialogue and organizations. Um, And maybe that was happening, but maybe it wasn't happening frequently enough. Um, I ended up doing my own sort of um, self-exploration, if you will, to figure out what might be next after I left the world of change management, culture strategy, and organizational development. And I ended up meeting an attorney turned mediator and it started putting together some of the pieces of what might be possible, what blending really what I was passionate about, what um, others have shared with me and what I believed I was actually good at um, and where my skills were um, and something that I felt like was a market opportunity with, with organizations. And so I ended up finding my way into mediation um, and ultimately workplace conflict resolution and mediation. Um, So I am a certified mediator. I did um, kind of double down, get my certification in that. And soon um, COVID threw a little bit of a wrench in it, but I will be um, certified at the Supreme Court level in Virginia, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, that sounds kind of intense (laughs) for for the uninitiated. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, what level of employee is more apt to need your services of, of being a mediator? Is it more the frontline folks or is it like the executive levels? Need or want? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I think that that's, that's part of the challenge, right? Is it takes an incredible, um, it takes an incredible amount of 
I think self-awareness first, but also a little bit of to borrow a buzzword vulnerability to be like, we're not good at having tough conversations, or I know I need to have these conversations and I don't feel equipped to have them. I think the the people more in my experience, the people more likely to speak up and say, this is not working are the, what you refer to as kind of like the frontline employees, the employees who are being charged with really like doing the work, being out there, um, and who maybe don't feel as supported or don't feel like they have the appropriate outlets to voice concerns or to share something, um, with someone who's maybe not their manager or not HR. Right. So I think those are the people who are most likely to say, wow, it would be nice if we had support. I think over the past, certainly 12 to 18 months, there are many executives and executive teams who are saying, we actually could make more of an investment in handling all sorts of difficult and different conversations in our organizations. And for those executives who have the power and authority um, uh, to to make those decisions, um, I think that's really, it says a lot about the culture they're trying to create and how they are willing to support those frontline employees. Has that been more prevalent with some of the national social conversations that are going on? Do you feel feel like that's been the driver or something else that's increased the amount of times you're being approached? I think it's both. I think for better or worse, 2020, uh, for myriad reasons, really took some blinders off of all of us in so many different ways, whether it was around race, equity, uh, socioeconomic issues, um, or just workplace culture and what we are uh, tolerating or allowing to inform how organizations um, exist. I think those conversations are happening at a greater frequency uh, than they have probably ever before, which is really, really exciting. Um, I do not purport to be an expert in diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI, as it's often called. Um, I have had some people reach out and request um, a, a mediator-led approach to DEI conversations. In those cases, I do, you know, I very, I, I very much lean into the fact that I have my own, um, my own constraints and not, I like to encourage others who are more equipped to have those conversations and whose area of expertise that really is, um, to do that. But when people come to me and say, we are more broadly developing skills around having difficult conversations, addressing conflict, managing conflict, and preventing, um, unhealthy conflict from happening in our organizations. Those are absolutely conversations that I have been having with a lot of organizations that I think is really fantastic when they're, that they're looking at it from a skill development standpoint as well, um, in conjunction with everything else we just talked about. And of course, another hallmark of the pandemic is work from home. As far as the platform for communication, has that been a challenge? Do you address that directly? Have you also seen that that's been a cause of potential conflict or maybe helping resolve items? Yeah, it's um, it's funny because one of the things I have even kind of pre-pandemic, it's funny how we talk about like pre-COVID, it's now like a, a, a time slot in our brains and lives. Um, but pre-COVID even, I, I would talk about how we decide to communicate a particular message, right? How we decide to have or engage in a 
uh, more nuanced or difficult conversation, even if it's a, a feedback conversation, right, at work, um, the medium that we choose to have that, whether it's email or a phone call or video or Slack message, um, really does matter. And so when we're thrust into a situation like we have been in 2020, where it's all virtual and you can't walk up to someone and fully read their body language or fully interpret their tone, uh, it can really throw a wrench in how messages are shared and received. So that is something that I have found has exacerbated um, communication. I won't necessarily say conflict, but I think that it creates an environment for potentially more tense dialogue. Um, And in those situations, I encourage people, if Slack is not working, switch to email, or if email is not working, pick up the phone, right? We shouldn't, I think, while we've made so much progress in the virtual work world um, and the tools that we have now accessible to us, it's really important to remember those, you can still pick up, you know, the phone and call someone. It doesn't have to be a video conversation. doesn't have to be a Slack message. The only other thing I would say is that um, when it comes to conflict or tense situations, and this is in or outside of the workplace, when we respond, we are likely responding from an emotional place uh, in the moment, right? Unless we are really well-versed in taking a step back, maybe you're super Zen and you meditate every day for 30 minutes and you can look at that situation and really calmly address it. But most of us, because of the way physiologically that we are, that we are wired and that our brains work in order to protect us, we respond from an emotional place. Platforms like Slack or Zoom chat or where any area where you can quickly fire off a message can be real a slippery slope when it comes to communicating period but especially about com- when it comes to communicating about difficult topics so that's where i encourage people slack is great for quick responses around project work maybe or sharing ideas but it's probably not the platform you want to use when you're giving feedback or something like that because it's just too easy to to not create that space to step back and take a breather and address it a uh, situation in a more thoughtful way. Yeah. It's like Slack is the worst combination of something being in print. So it's open to interpretation, which of course is part of the potential pitfalls with email. I mean, I feel like most people that read email etiquette, especially if you are in a heightened emotional state, if you need to write that email and then look at it and that helps you cope. Great. Do that. But wait to hit that send button. Well, something like Slack. And if people aren't familiar with that tool, it's an instant messenger service. So it's really easy to hit that enter button right in the moment. And then of course it's out there. And again, I definitely agree that something that is in the written word without any other body cues or tone to go along with it is the most apt to be misinterpreted, especially when you're in the middle of an emotional communication. Uh, Is that something that you definitely preach is, for example, what I would say to people that I manage, if you can do face-to-face, do face-to-face. If that's not possible, phone, because at least then you have the tone. And of course, gosh, this was before Zoom and all of that and whether or not you use your webcam. And then at the very least, use email. Do you kind of have a hierarchy like that at all? I do. Um, 
you know, I generally, and when I do one-on-one conflict coaching, I ask people, you know, first there's some excavation of what the, all the issues are and kind of figuring out what exactly they want to do. But if they want to have a conversation, a feedback conversation or whatever it might be, address an issue that has been lingering or that's causing resentment um, or causing them to be demotivated and, and or, you know, not engaged in the work. And the next logical step is a conversation. I do say the the way you have that conversation, how the, the tool that you use to have that conversation is going to be incredibly important if it's not possible to get together in person. I, I agree with you 100%. I think if you're able to be in person, that is ideal. What 2020 has shown us is that sometimes that is not possible. And so <clears throat> I think you have to go with the next best, best thing, which to me is yes, a phone, a, a video, if that's, if that's possible or, um, or a phone call. And that's grounded in research that has been done over decades, many decades ago, um, by someone who studied communication and I'm blanking on his name, of course, but I'm happy to share the link afterwards. Um, but it was around communication and how, what we say is interpreted. The majority of how our message is interpreted is through body language. The second largest way that we interpret communication is through tone and inflection and the smallest amounts, like 7% of what we interpret is the actual words. So all of these words I'm saying to you, um, are mean much more with the combination of you being able to see my face and my hands. I use my hands a lot when I talk um, and my tone and inflection, of course. So I encourage people to take all of those things into consideration um, when they are crafting that, that conversation. Just one more comment on the same theme. I also try to tell people if you are writing something down, if it's something you're not willing to say to the person face to face, that's another probably good gauge as to whether or not that's an email you want to hit send on, or again, you want to send that text or instant message for, because sometimes people will get a little too confident <laughs> in, in what they're doing, maybe than they otherwise would, and maybe aren't considering the person on the other end. And of course, how they'll interpret it. Absolutely. And you think about play, play that out in all of the, you know, the conversations around Facebook as a platform and where people can, it's easy to fire off a comment. It's easy to really, um, to, to quickly respond when you can't see the other person on the other side of the screen. And so I do encourage people, especially if it is a a tough conversation, don't hide behind a screen, really, really try to develop a rapport and relationship. There has to be some trust and respect building throughout that process. And that's the thing that will allow you to get to the other side of it um, to really improve, improve those dynamics. Hopefully. Let me ask you this, tying some of the items we've talked about, around the social issues that are very, very prevalent at the moment. I've read one of the problems with your Facebooks, your Twitters, things like that, where people are getting their news from controlled sources. That's probably not the right way to say it, but Facebook wants you to keep engaging with Facebook. One way to do that is to show you the content that you want to see. In a lot of cases, of course, that can mean you are just having whatever your beliefs are confirmed by the type of information that will confirm the way that you view things. Has that translated over at all in the work world where you're maybe not in the same meeting room with people that maybe don't think the same things that you do? So you are now maybe becoming more rigid in your, I guess, tolerance of others? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, you know, I just recently contributed to an article around how to de-escalate or, you know, techniques for preventing conflict to begin with. And while I think so much of it, it, it's much more nuanced than just do this, this, and this, because we're human beings and there, there's so much that goes into relationships and trust and respect. But I think one of the challenges, regardless of whether it's a platform or in a meeting or in a workplace that we come up against is what I, what I'm going to call, um, assumptions, making assumptions, holding assumptions. We talk about this, um, or I I know this has been a conversation too, when it comes to DEI around um, implicit bias, the things that we are holding in our minds before we even sit down across from a table, whether it's virtual or in person with with an individual. Um, And so I oftentimes will encourage people to check their assumptions. What do I think I know about this person before I engage with them? What What do I think they might know about me or assume about me? And so often we enter into these conversations and to your point, sometimes heated conversations with complete strangers over the internet. And we're not necessarily taking a step back and saying, how much do I really know about this person? How much have I, how many opportunities have I created for myself to see different perspectives that may inform this discussion, right? And so there's a lot of work that I think each person has to do themselves before they jump into conversations like that. And that is oftentimes, um, I think it does, like you said, reflect in the workplace as well in, in a little bit of a different way sometimes. Um, and then at the end of the day too, recognizing that we can't actually control another person. I can do everything in my power to adjust how I respond, how I react, how I form um, my conversation with you and the information I take in before, during, or after that conversation. But at the end of the day, if I'm sitting there trying to force you to change your mind, it's just not, it's just not a productive approach. And so that is also what I um, see sometimes in organizations where people feel like they're at a standstill or they're just not able to communicate any further. It's where, um, it's where we really encourage space to step away from the issues that they're so close to and really try to zoom out and see it from a different perspective. Also an emphasis on one of your very first points of listening. <laughs> it, uh, you read, especially in the work world all the time about step back. Don't just be waiting for your turn to speak. Make sure you're actually listening and reflecting. Seems easy, but of course, in the heat of the moment, it really can be a tough issue. Well, let's pivot a little bit to talk about some of these lessons learned from the work world and how they apply to family life. The first thing that's coming to mind for me is how emotionally depleted are you at the end of your workday? So, Let's be honest. I don't think most people are as fresh at the end of the day as they are when they first wake up, which certainly can have an effect on your mindset when you're first getting into the door, which of course is not good because your family is the group of people that you want to have the most compassion for and be the most patient with. And sometimes it doesn't always work out that way just based on when you see them within the day. So sticking with the current pandemic issues, same question. Are you hearing or noticing similar kinds of issues in people's family communications? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, and I can speak from my own personal experience and then obviously um, anecdotally from some of the mediation, family mediation work that I do. And I should I should say, and I'm sorry to mention this before, my mediation certification is in juvenile domestic relations in Virginia. And so that is the area um, that, that I have been most closely associated with. Um, it's really tough, right? And I, I like how you brought up kind of like when you come through the door, but in fact, we haven't even been walking through doors to see our family. We've been like all on top of each other. Um, I have, I, I, I live with my husband. I have two stepkids, one who, um, who just t- turned 14 and one who will be 17 in June. And so we are, you know, this was a really, really new experience for all of us. My husband is also a uh, middle school math teacher. And so he was teaching from home, thrown into that, learning how to do that. Um, the kids were away from their friends, learning how to learn virtually. Um, and here I am, you know, I work for myself, but I'm used to having the house to myself during the day. And so I was like, what's happening? Um, but I think it, it's been this really incredible learning curve for all of us. Um, at, meaning all of us, me and my family, but also all of us in, in the world, right? Being in such close quarters where we even, when we were at the office, may have had an opportunity to hopefully take a breather before we walk through the door or listen to our favorite song in the car just to like pep ourselves up before we before we re-engage with our family, knowing that we are feeling a little bit burned out or it was a stressful day at work and I don't want to take it out on on the kids or my husband. Um, so how we have created those opportunities to sort of recharge and create space for our own self-care in the midst of being on top of each other, I think you're right, is, in, is incredibly important and something that has been and looked very differently over the past year or so. I am very specifically relating to what you said about being a work from home person prior to the pandemic. And right, you get that space to yourself. And I, I had the exact same reaction as my kids were home early and doing some online education. Luckily for us this past year, we managed to find a school that stayed open pretty much throughout the year. But also to your point about the added stress of school, this week actually is the first week where my son had to do virtual. And (laughs) this is only one weekend. And I'm like, oh my gosh, now I can really feel for the people that have been doing this all year while trying to keep their job moving and doing what they're supposed to be doing. It is crazy. And again, just adds to all the stress that none of us have ever really experienced in quite this way before. So yeah, it is definitely a challenge. Like I said, I now have an even better appreciation for it for the people that have been doing it for, well, pretty much the whole year, depending on the school district in the country that they are living in and probably will end up being that way. What about from ages to ages? So your stepkids, as you mentioned, are um, older. My kids are very young, four and six. So let's, let's start maybe with the younger kids. Again, from your experience and what you've researched and read, what should be some of those considerations for parents, again, both now and even in general in their communications? Yeah. I think one of the most important lessons, reminders, or things to be considerate of is that, um, and this extends across all ages, right, is validation of feelings and emotions. And so if your four-year-old is telling you 
um, or is expressing in their own way, as four-year-olds sometimes do, that they don't want to be in front of a screen or they're having trouble with that or that they're tired or what, whatever it is that they might be expressing, you know, it's it's our job um, as parents or step-parents or f- family members um, or the support system to really acknowledge that what they're, whatever they are experiencing, whether we truly understand it on a, you know, on a, on a certain level or not, um, is valid in its own right. And I think that that extends through, through all ages, but this, I think it's important too, to recognize what is, what does stress look like for each of my kids? How does it show up differently? How do I know when they're at their own little breaking point? You know, I know what it feels like for me when I'm burned out or stressed or, or not feeling great, or I've had a really long day. I also know how I like to recharge and the things that lift me up. And so one of the things that I think is really important, um, uh, that has been important in my own experience. And I think that can continue to be important is having those conversations in your own way and developmentally appropriate in a, in a developmentally appropriate way around like what makes you really nervous or what makes you stressed out or what makes you feel sad. Um, but on the flip side, what, what are the things that you do that make you feel like you're having fun or feel better? Um, you know, for my stepson, he likes playing soccer. And so I know it's a good release for him, some sort of physical activity, especially when he's been sitting in front of a computer all day. Um, and, but my stepdaughter is entirely different. She likes drawing and art and she likes to sometimes like help out with chores around the house. And that's her own way of like breaking out and doing something different and kind of recharging in her own way. Um, but I think you can start having those conversations with even little ones, um, early on, you know, as appropriate, uh, to figure out what are the things that, that you can be looking out for, um, and continue to validate and support them and how they're expressing that. Let's say you're in the middle of a power struggle with those, strong-willed, strong-minded young young ones, I assume there's kind of a balance of pick your battles and, you know, when you should have a hard line. What are your thoughts? Because uh, that's what I think of when I think of conflict resolution for your, for your little ones. Some of it, I think, is probably what you mentioned, those emotional cues even for them and uh, letting them have an outlet. But Again, how, how should we balance that of not being a pushover as a parent, but also not being so restrictive that your young children feel like they have no control over anything? Absolutely. Oh, man, that's I know. And the control is such an interesting part of this. And it plays a role in so much of conflict resolution. I think about um, family mediations and I think about part of the process is relinquishing control, right? When you think about uh, um, uh, a married couple going through a divorce, there is a certain, um, it's a change. It's a massive change. I think that the control plays a large part in any of these situations because we want to, as humans have a certain level of protection for ourselves, protection for what we deem important, um, which may be different than what other people deem important, right? Things that we value, which may be different than what other people value. Um, and we and we like to control our, our own environments. Um, I think the idea of relinquishing control within reason, of course, when it comes to parenting is really a fascinating concept. I am on my own journey with that with teenagers, right? And, and on a different level as a step-parent, um, 
But I think it looks different for every family and for every even relationship, you with one of your children versus you with your other or with uh, with your other child. Um, because it is, it can feel like a little bit of a power struggle in those moments. And I, I think this translates too, to, to even what we were talking about before, when you're in the midst of a power struggle, it's really difficult to separate out, um, your position from the ideal outcome, because it, if you recognize it, and again, you have to give yourself the space to recognize whether you're moving into I'm going to call it irrational, not in, not even in a negative sense, but you're moving away from executive functioning, rational thinking, and it becomes about just being right or controlling, right? We know that kids developmentally don't have that ability until many, many years later. And so it is our responsibility as the adult, as the parent to say, okay, what is control within reason look like? What can, what boundaries? And I think that's another word that has really gotten a lot of spotlight over the past 12 to 18 months which in, and justifiably so. What are the appropriate boundaries here for me to set as a parent? And how do I hold those boundaries so that um, what's important for my family, for my well-being and for my kids' well-being uh, is actually able to, to happen? Um, one of my and I don't purport to be an expert in in parenting by any means. My goodness, I am. I, every day is a learning experience. Um, and uh, but one of my favorite, uh, there's a child psychologist that I've been off Instagram for a couple months now. But one woman, uh, her name is Doctor Becky, and her Instagram handle is like Doctor Becky at Home. Uh, and I just loved what she would. I just loved. She has like super practical tips and real in the moment, um, tips for when you do feel like you're in a power struggle with your four-year-old and you're like, they're four years old. What the heck? Like I shouldn't even be engaging in this disagreement, but she talks a lot about validation and boundary setting and that sort of stuff, which really rings true to me, um, on so many different levels. For myself, there's two strategies that I try to keep in mind. I think at all times, one is to your point about the outcome, even when there's something that's not negotiable, like the child brushing their teeth in the morning, you can still form it as a choice. For example, do you want to get dressed first or brush your teeth first? You have a choice of those two things. They're going to happen, <laughs> but you have a choice of which one goes, which hopefully gives the the child a little bit more of a sense of control that they get to choose at least when the things happen, but not as much what the things that are going to happen. And the other big reminder, especially for the young ones, but I imagine this could probably interpret over to older kids as well, is taking some time to present whatever scenario happens to be that you know could lead to a tantrum or whatever. Just remind yourself that, yeah, this seems so tedious to play a game to get the child to do what you want them to do. But guess what? That's taking less time than the massive tantrum that may come and you have to leave a public place if that's where it happens, or you have to delay getting out the door if it's part of your morning routine. So I try to keep those couple of things in mind to say, yep, have the strategy and have some patience. I love it. And I love the, I love the choice. We actually do that a lot, even, even with the teens, you know, it's, it, to your point, it really allows, um, a little bit of autonomy and control for them, which is important, right? It's important to, to feel even at an early age that you have the ability to 
control your life, control what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so I love that. I love that y'all do that. And let's move this over a little bit to the older kids. Now I am not there yet. So (laughs) I am, uh, in theory, aware of some of the nuanced challenges that come on a high level, you'd basically say this is a human that can reason more intricately than the young ones. <laughs> so again, those conversations can get more nuanced. I know I've definitely had uh, parents of older kids say less issues, but the issues they have are more complicated, which presumably would also take more time, I would assume, in just general communication and certainly with conflict resolution. I think. You know, one of one of the concepts that we try to really instill is um, trust, and I think trust becomes really important as kids get older. And so, I and I think trust and respect go hand in hand, and that is without a doubt for all of the work that I do, whether I am working with a frontline employer, an executive, um, or a, or my sixteen year old stepson. And I think the other thing that, and so we try to create a a real sense of trust and, and acceptance, uh, and, and a safe space to mess up and a safe space to talk about what we learn from when we mess up, whatever that looks like, right? If that's missing curfew or if it's something more serious, or if it's something that we as a family have said, we just don't, this, this is not how we treat others or whatever the case may be. Right. And every family has their established kind of values and beliefs and the way and ways of operating. Um, so I think it's important to, yes, have those conversations and you're right. They take up a lot of time and it's, and every time they happen, you know, the thing that I remind myself of, and I know my husband reminds himself of too, is we are, it's our job as parents to model resolution and communication, uh, and the behaviors that we hope at the end of the day will eventually resonate with the kids. Um, and they'll be able to put their own twist on, on what that looks like. But I think kids at any age are incredibly perceptive. I know my teenagers personally are always looking for, uh, what me and my husband do and they're looking at what we will and won't accept. Um, they're looking at how we respond in, excuse me, in situations. And so for me, the focus on my response has been incredibly heightened, especially in a, in a pressure cooker of the, the pressure cooker of 2020 where stress was compounded, you know, how do we respond to stressful situations? How do we respond when, we don't get our way or when we lose or whatever the case may be, how do you, how do you handle the difficulties that life is going to throw at you? Um, and that has been something that we have really focused on and talked about. Um, I'll share a personal example. My husband just, this is his first week back with students, um, in the classroom as a, as a teacher here in, uh, in, he's actually in Henrico County. And, I was feeling a little bit of stress about it because the kids are still um, working remotely um, or learning remotely rather. And now it's me at home with the kids during the week. And I said, Hey, I just, I, I feel like I want to share that I'm feeling a little stress around this particular um, transition. And so I'd like for us to sit down as a family and talk about what each of us are feeling, maybe a little bit stressed about, and also lean into a little bit of kind of 
creative problem solving on how we can support each other. So they are at an age now where, yes, they can more intricately understand why or how I might feel stressed. And I am also creating space for them to talk about what this transition means for them. And then together, figuring out how we want to, um, what we want to do, how we feel like we can best support each other. And it was actually a really, we just did this. I'm, I'm not joking, like three weeks ago. I'm a dork, so I had like a flip chart out. We're like writing down all these different things. But it was an opportunity for us to just sit down as a family and and talk and, and try to figure it out together. And I think that was, I know that the kids appreciated being a part of that. Um, and and I certainly experienced you know, express to them how much it meant to me uh, that they were willing to do that. That's a great point. And, and actually, yeah, I assume not necessarily being a nerd, but just kind of based on your background, uh, even being able to identify here is something that is coming that can and will produce stress and can and will produce conflict amongst family members. I feel like calling myself out a little bit, the day-to-day being able to see something coming or just nuances of interacting in the world of compromise. Maybe this is really just me, but if I do something that I think, okay, I'm compromising, I'm not going to say, Hey, look at me compromising right now. Cause then it doesn't really come across like you're being flexible, <laughs> right? It's, it's almost like charity. Like, you know, if you're going out and, and telling everybody everywhere what kind of charity you're doing, well, you know, are you doing it for the right reason? So I, I feel almost like the same thing when you are trying to be flexible and help support family and so on. And where I'm going with that is where what it could lead to is once you've hit a breaking point, everything just comes out. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And of course, the other person didn't know that you thought you were uh, compromising and, and trying to be the, the good sport until you hit a breaking point and it'll seem like it's coming from out of nowhere. So I, I like that you've got the very specific meetings and, and looking ahead. I think that's something people should really be aware of. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think, I think what you bring up is something that so many people, um, including myself over the years have struggled with. I don't mind taking on the fair share of the house cleaning, but when it gets to the point where I feel like I'm the only one doing it and I feel like resentment is building that can create a recipe for unproductive tension in the house, right? And everyone we know is affected by that. And so I think it's really important to remember to to take stock throughout your day and throughout your week, no matter who you are, um, about what are the things that I feel like I'm compromising a little bit more on? Have I communicated that to anyone? Not in a showy to your point, hey, I'm compromising. Just keep that in mind for the future when I need to call in a favor for you, right? Because that's not ideal. But what But when I say take stock, I just mean check your intentions. Are you doing it because you want to cash in a favor in the future? Are you doing it because you genuinely want to support the family? Um, And and are there there, um, some indicators that you might be doing it so frequently that you are starting to feel resentful? And if if the answer to that last one is yes, then I think you are absolutely right to say, I really, I want to share something with you about one of the things I've observed about myself or something that I've been feeling as of late. And I just want to kind of put it out there, um, to, to talk about before, before it 
kind of gets, gets worse or before I become resentful, you know, you're almost, you're, you are being proactive or preventative in a way, um, in that sense, because you're not waiting for it to blow up. And I think that is most critical, but we, many people have a tendency to say like, it's fine. It's fine. It'll get better or they'll do it differently next time or whatever the case is. Right. And so if, if you can establish those expectations up front, which is exactly what we did in our, in our kind of family meeting, right. It said, what can we hold each other accountable to? What can we count on each other and expect from each other? Um, so that it doesn't create, so that there's not confusion or last minute, uh, kind of stress and, and it can really be, uh, it can really be very helpful. It also goes back to your point about walking the walk and the kids are watching to see how the adults in the house handle themselves and how they handle conflict and communication. What about specifically between the two parents We've touched on it a little bit, and I think all of the examples that you're mentioning apply to the parents being on the same page. But any other tips that spouses should keep in mind for their own personal conflict resolution, especially because they need to be in lockstep more so maybe than any other uh, pairing in their lives? Um <clears throat> You know, one of the things that I do in my workshops, and I actually, I did this, we did this exercise as a family like two years ago. When was the last time you sat down with your spouse, um, her partner, or even close friends or, or kids, if they're, if they're old enough and said, what do you really care about? What do you value? Um, it can really serve as a grounding exercise to say, okay, um, I didn't know that, or I did, but it's a nice reminder. And it's also one of those, um, it's an opportunity to create alignment at best, um, but also understanding and awareness. Uh, and again, I think I'll go back to the thing we were talking about earlier. So often we would just walk through our days with assumptions. Oh, my husband will take care of that. Oh, the kids are going to do this. Oh, they probably assume that I'm going to do this, but we don't, it's just floating around up here, right? In our heads. And so if we take even 30 minutes to sit down and say, work's been busy this week, it's going to get even worse in the next month because it's just a busy season at work. Before it does, could we maybe just take 30 minutes and talk about what's important to us when things get busy? And I think creating, and that it doesn't have to be exactly that conversation. It can be whatever feels most relevant or important to, uh, you know, uh, family or friends or whomever is having these conversations. But I think creating the space is the most important part. Um, so that you are not walking around with all these assumptions because assumptions are uh, assumptions really do get in the way of a lot of productive conversation. And so when we can kind of debunk what we assume about the other person or what they're going to handle around the house, it can help out a lot. So they ex so we did a values exercise as a family. And we said, I, you know, had everyone choose their top five values. My husband did it. Chloe did it. Noah did it. And we all kind of sat down and just learned what was important to each other. And it was really incredibly helpful, um, to just learn more about each other. And, and then when you think about how that plays into stressful situations, you now have this data point, hopefully, or a reminder of, um, of who each person is as an actual human being. Because I think 
one of the things that is um, a big contributor to stress is that when we get busy, it's hard to pull out of the busy, right? And it almost becomes, and we know this in kind of work, American workplace culture is, it's almost like a competition on who's busier. And it would be a complete lie if we said that that didn't sometimes come up at work. Oh, you think your day was tough? Oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you about all the things that happened in my day. And so when we, when we almost dehumanize our partners or our kids or whatever, it's like we're invalidating how, how that looks and feels for them. And so whenever there's an opportunity to just clear the air, create space and talk as human to human about how that's showing up. Um, I say, take that opportunity. You don't need to do a full weekend family retreat. I'm not saying that. I think these could be a dedicated 15 or 30 minute conversation um, before bed or at breakfast or whenever you have that time together as a family or as a, as a partnership. No, again, I'm not quite there yet. Although I guess I could start them now. The concept of like the one parent one-on-one with their kid date or whatever you want to call it. It also is a way to see where the kid's at. And again, the things you mentioned of what's going on in their life. Again, if that's stressors and things that help them de-stress, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like a very good idea to me. We try to do the Tell me all about the end of your day uh, right before bedtime, which seems to work pretty well. So I, I don't know how long my kids will let me <laughs> do that, you know, at the very end of the day. At some point, they'll say, Dad, get out of my room. But for now, it's working pretty <laughs> pretty well for us. Well, how about the scenario of divorced or separated parents? Because everything you're saying, I think, is absolutely valid, absolutely makes complete sense. But, of course, one other wrench in there is whether or not the parents are on the same page and highly or likelihood potentially um, that they wouldn't be in a, in a divorce or separated situation. And then also depending on the integrity of the person, I guess, let's say what one parent is saying while the kids are with them versus the other probably is another nuance. So w- what do you see there? Yeah, Absolutely. And it is arguably one of the most difficult experiences to navigate. Um, In mediation, the focus is always, if there are children involved, the focus is always on the children. And we even start off mediations by, you know, asking about the kids, show me a picture, like let's reground ourselves in why we're here, which is, again, if kids are involved, it is to create the most um, normal in the sense of that family dynamic, right? Whatever the kids, whatever is most beneficial to the kids, right? And that does include to your, to borrow your words, the parents being on the same page, moving forward as co-parents. Um, and that can also be incredibly difficult to do because what, if you remember what we chatted about earlier, there is a desire to control, to protect to protect for ego preservation, right? For each parent in that situation. And my job as a mediator is to create space where they can share their concerns, share their ideas about how to best move forward for the sake of the children or the child and help them come up with a plan together to make that happen. What we don't do in mediation is give advice or say, okay, So I think you should do X, Y, and Z, right? 
Um, because at the end of the day, what is the situations that end up being most successful are, are where people feel like they've been able to share concerns get some stuff out in the open that they think might be a barrier to creating a productive plan or agreement. Um, but then working from that place of awareness and, uh, understanding and yeah, it's really difficult, but the, we, we always come back to the kids, the phrasing that we use, the, um, the, the way the agreements are written in mediation is child focused because at the end of the day, that is actually the most important, um, the important outcome. Uh, but it can be incredibly difficult to get people to not dig into their positions and what they want, what's convenient for their schedules. You brought up something else, which is assuming you move forward, you've created a co-parenting plan and you feel okay about it. Um, how do you actually respect, how do you respect the other person, even when they're not in front of you or in their home, um, in your home? And, and how do you, how can you trust that that same respect is being given? It's very difficult. And I go back to one of the things that I talked about earlier, which is, um, around control. You are only able to control your own actions, your own behaviors, and your kids are always watching. All kids are always watching. My husband's a teacher. His students are watching him for how he speaks and how he acts um, how he resolves issues. I think that if you model respect, that is hopefully reciprocated. But even when it's not, um, you have to really know and understand yourself well enough. And in those moments, think about even if the kids aren't standing right here watching us, what would they, what would I want them to see from me? And I think just that mental reminder, that kind of men- that visualization can help I'm going to say, um, create a more productive or constructive dynamic. I think that to some extent gets us full circle because if people are like me in the work world, you are consciously restraining yourself to remain professional as you should. Uh, but maybe again, that stepping back and again, as much as you can remove emotion out of conversations in your personal life, hopefully all the better. And you're taking some time to take in the information or take in the situation and not just reacting and, and really thinking through it and making sure that it makes sense. So to some extent, using your work persona might be a good thing (laughs) to bring home into your personal life. Well, uh, Natalie, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Before I do, do you want to give folks your contact information, if they can find you on social media or any other promotions you may want to let folks know about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would welcome uh, dialogue, conversation after this. I'd be happy to answer any questions. People can reach me over email. It's Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E at 180, all spelled out, O-N-E. E-I-G-H-T-Y dot I-O. Um, that is also my website, 180.io. And I have some free resources on the website as well, articles and downloadable guides, even a values exercise if people feel so inclined to do that with their partner coming out of this conversation. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, just my name, Natalie Garamon. I would love for people to connect with me um, or follow 180 on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. And of course, I'll put your information into the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Again, I appreciate you taking the time and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Greg. I'm really grateful to be here today with you. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at SuburbanFolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle SuburbanFolk. Thank you for listening to my daddy.